All right, everyone. Well, um, welcome back. And I'm really happy to introduce for the second lecture of this two-part series, Dr. Langford. Um, so as you guys heard last week, Dr. Langford is really an expert in um, OBGYN, MFM, and did a fellowship here in critical care as well. And now really specializes in kind of the intersection between these two specialties. And um, last week, I think, was a great lecture that combined uh, really interesting sort of difficult cases when it comes to um, OBGYN and MFM and critical care uh, with ultrasound and, and physiologically challenging cases. So I look forward to the second part of this lecture. Dr. Langford, thank you so much for being here again this week. Thank you guys um, for having me. I'm looking forward to part two. Um, you know, we kind of combined last, uh, the lectures that were assigned from uh, physiologic changes of pregnancy and um, OB ultrasound and just kind of made it uh, case-based um, both maternal and fetal cases. And I'm hoping that the fetal cases um, in part two are um, really interesting because I find them very, very fascinating. Um, so last time we did um, sort of the cardiovascular, uh, respiratory, renal, and changes in the kind of the coagulation profile in pregnancy. Um, and this week we're going to kind of focus um, a little bit more on endocrine changes, hematologic changes, um, and some nutritional things in pregnancy as well. All right, so we will get started um, with our first case. Um, and the patient is a 39-year-old, a Gravita 5, pair of 4004. She's at 22 weeks and zero days, who presents to labor and delivery with complaints of vaginal bleeding. Patient's pregnancy is complicated by a history of four previous cesarean sections. She states that she was told that she has a placenta previa, and her doctor told her that to present to the hospital if she ever has vaginal bleeding. She's hemodynamically stable. She has a minimal amount of blood on speculum exam. There's no active bleeding from the cervix, and she appears comfortable with no signs of preterm labor. So what are some of the hematologic changes that we need to think about in pregnancy, um, and how do we account for or prepare, how does the pregnant patient prepare for delivery when we know that there's going to be an anticipated blood loss of anywhere from 100 cc's to in a vaginal delivery to a, a liter or 1,200 cc's in a cesarean delivery, which is kind of what we would expect. So there's increased erythropoiesis, which essentially is going to increase the red blood cell mass by about 20 to 30 percent. Uh, these changes are mediated by progesterone and pro prolactin. Um, but we know that this increase in red blood cell mass is proportionately lower than the increase in plasma volume. So whenever we say there's a physiologic anemia from hemodilution, that is this phenomenon. We define anemia in pregnancy less than 11. Um, and, and I just want to encourage you that if you see any pregnant patient with a microcytic anemia, you still want to evaluate that. Patients are prone to iron deficiency, um, so we always do want to work up a microcytic anemia. That would be abnormal. And again, these are just adaptations um, that help prepare for delivery. So our case in particular, you send her to the ultrasound unit um, to get a better assessment of her previa. Um, and some of the things that you find or look very concerning. So in the top left, um, we really are just showing that it's a placenta previa here. So you've got the placenta, and this would be the cervix in the lower uterine segment. 
Um, so you can confidently say that that is a complete placenta previa. The bottom left, we're just showing you a sweep through the lower uterine segment and the placenta in itself, and you see these kind of significant areas that look just sort of like something just kind of was chomped out of them. Um, this is very abnormal appearing. It's heterogeneous in nature. You see these big vascular, what we call lakes. Um, you should not see large placental lakes like that. Um, same thing here. This probably, I'll show you a couple vaginal, transvaginal ultrasounds where you can get more um, granular detail when you're looking specifically at the myometrium and whether or not you can define the myometrium well kind of between the placenta and the bladder. Just looking at this, um, this would strike me as someone that this is concerning for uh, what we call placenta accreta spectrum. You may have heard like morbidly adherent placenta. It just describes the spectrum of placenta accreta, increta, and percreta. Because it's really challenging to sort of identify whether it's an accreta versus percreta um, just by ultrasound alone, and they should be a histopathologic diagnosis. So if I see this, and I know the patient's history of four prior cesarean deliveries and a previa, I automatically think this person probably has placenta accreta spectrum um, just from a percentage and odds perspective. So you get a couple additional images. This is transvaginal. And again, the top left, what we're showing is the increased vascularity along that bladder edge. So here's the bladder, here's the placenta. There is really no intervening myometrium at all. And you have a lot of neovascularization when you have um, a previa and um, what we would think to be a percreta. This patient in particular, um, had a percreta. So again, it's really hard to assess true bladder invasion unless you see like this bulging mass into the uh, bladder itself. Um, but with that increased uh, vasculature, we, we do worry that that probably has bladder involvement consistent with a percreta. So again, here you can see along this we're measuring the length of the cervix. And the reason we do that is because we use that as sort of an uh, assessment of the likelihood that they may have preterm labor. Um, there is no protocol to do that, um, but we like to do it here in that if I know someone has a long cervical length, their likelihood of preterm labor is, is decreased or preterm delivery. And again, this is just a sweep through uh, vaginally where you see these increased vasculature, you see no intervening myometrium at all, and you see these large vascular lakes. So what, I think these are the things we just talked about, but what you're looking for in ultrasound when you're concerned about a placenta accreta spectrum disorder, you, one, are most commonly going to see a previa. Um, and on the next slide, I'll show you the likelihood of a, of a placenta accreta spectrum when you have a previa based on the number of prior cesarean deliveries. But you see loss of a hypoechoic zone between the placenta and the myometrium. See multiple vascular lacunae. And again, you can see this exophytic mass or bulge of the placenta into um, the bladder that's associated with increased hypervascularity. And the reason why that's so important is, and I'll show you some gross specimens, but it makes the dissection um, very challenging because those bridging vessels are really prone to bleeding during your dissection. So we know that placenta accreta spectrum is a major cause of mater maternal morbidity. 
I'm sure that some of you have seen patients in the ICU that either have known or unknown placental accretive spectrum and are, um, their delivery is um, has associated with hemorrhagic shock and they often end up in your unit. Um, so we know that there is a significant reduction in morbidity and mortality um, if we know the diagnosis beforehand. Um, we can allow for a multidisciplinary preoperative planning. Um, we often coordinate with anesthesia. We coordinate with other surgical services at times. Some hospitals have GYN oncology that's involved. Um, oftentimes, we, if in really bad cases, we've had trauma, place a reboa. Um, so it requires a great deal of coordination, and all is done much easier when it's done before the procedure itself. So the biggest risk factor for a placenta accretive spectrum is a placenta previa and a history of prior cesarean delivery. So we know that in patients that have no prior um, cesarean delivery but a previa, their risk of uh, what we say PAS or PAS is about 3%. If they've had one cesarean delivery and previa, it's 11%. Two prior delivery, cesarean deliveries, it's 40%. And when you get up into three and four cesarean deliveries with previa, it's greater than 60%. So, again, based on history alone for our patient, we are really worried about a placenta accretive spectrum, and it was confirmed with an ultrasound. So these are just some images um, that kind of how does the um, ultrasound correlate with what we're seeing in the operating room. So. Um, I'll walk you through some of these images. This is just kind of fun. This is not really anything that you guys would have to know in particular, but just how do we do the surgery itself? So when you're doing the surgery, the, um, you, you certainly don't want to incise through the placenta. So you want to do a high classical incision on the uterus. And what we're showing in this image in C is we're showing that we use a GIA stapler, which is often used for um, general surgery and bowel surgery which actually has um, kind of titanium staples. And the reason why we do that is because when you open the hysterotomy using the stapler, we don't have any bleeding from the edges of the hysterotomy. And oftentimes when you are doing these cases, the bleeding from the hysterotomy, because you've gone through the thick myometrial layers, they bleed a lot. So you can lose a liter just from the incision itself. So when we use the stapler, we've minimized our blood loss from our incision and it's not in our surgical field. So we open up the hysterotomy, we see the amniotic membranes, we rupture the membranes and deliver the fetus without touching the placenta at all. Because if you can imagine, the placenta is down here, kind of previa overlying the cervix. So we, still, we stay far away from the placenta. We just ligate the umbilical cord, and then we just start our dissection. So, again, this is just sort of correlating with what you're seeing on ultrasound vaginally, where this is the bladder. And these are those bridging vessels that we're seeing between the placenta that has now invaded through the uterus into the bladder. And you see it on cystoscopy. So we always do cystoscopy at the start of our cases. One, we like to place ureteral stents, but two, um, we like to look for this. Because if we see this, then we kind of know that there is invasion into the bladder itself, and it's just going to make our dissection that much more challenging. And this is um, an example of one of the cases that we have. You can see these really large torturous vessels, which can bleed significantly if you were to get into them. Um, and then on the right, just simply a, a kind of basic schematic of what it is between accreta to percreta, specifically the invasion 
into the myometrium and to what degree it invades. So again, an, in Creta, when it invades into the myometrium greater than 50%, and per Creta is through the myometrium and through the uterine serosa, off into adjacent structures like the bladder and um, out into the broad ligament. So again, just some more images, because I find these images so fascinating, but you see um, these bridging vessels, increased vascularity. So this is not something you would ever, ever see in a normal C-section, not affected by placenta accreta spectrum. This itself right here, this is the placenta with a very, very thin, thin membrane over top of it. And oftentimes, we do get MRI just to help assess um, invasion into the bladder or, again, um, in, out laterally into the broad ligament. Um, ultrasound is very good. The sensitivity is about 90% for these conditions. Um, and MRI is not technically better, but we do like to get it just to sort of help support the diagnosis. And then just some additional specimens. Once we've completed our dissection, what it looks like when it comes out. And again, this is the placenta itself just coming through that uterine serosa. So these cases, again, can be associated with increased blood loss. We know mass transfusion. So when we can plan preoperatively and we are able to complete our dissection, we usually will have a blood loss of about 400 to 500. Um, but Again, I just wanted to incorporate the hematologic changes of pregnancy that prepare women for a normal delivery. These certainly um, are often associated with much higher blood loss. Okay, um, next case. So we have a patient that's 24 years old. She's a G6P0312. She is at 28 weeks and five days who presents to labor and delivery with complaints of fever, nausea, vomiting, and palpitations. Um, so that alone kind of gives a pretty broad differential. Um, she has a history of hyperthyroidism with multiple admissions for fetal thyroid, or for, sorry, for thyroid storm in previous pregnancies and a history of intrauterine fetal demise at 30 weeks. She admits to you that she often forgets to take her medications. The nurse attempts to place the patient on continuous fetal monitoring, but the fetal heart rate is not reading accurately. So you get an ultrasound, um, and it looks like the heart is just beating incredibly fast. So you do some assessment where you're assessing the atrial rate comparing to the ventricular rate um, to see if this is like a supraventricular tachycardia, a flutter, a fib. Um, and you notice that the atrial rate is much, much faster than the ventricular rate. So we use M mode, and we just our cursor through the ventricle and through the atrium so that we can uh, differentiate the two. Um, so one of the things we're worried about is fetal hyperthyroidism, and we'll talk a little bit more about what um, predisposes the fetus to being affected, um, but that's what we're concerned with here. So again, I'm just showing you how we can um, obtain the atrial rate versus the ventricular rate and how it looks on M mode. And what we're showing is that the atrial rate is 250 compared to a ventricular rate. So one of the things that can actually mis be misleading is if you were to just assess the ventricular rate, if you just look at the heart and put the M mode through the ventricles, you're not going to get an accurate assessment of the true atrial rate. So it can be a little bit challenging at bedside um, if you don't assess both. Um, these cases of fetal hyperthyroidism can be associated with polyhydramnios. 
um, which is we talked about that in our uh, first lecture, but you're assessing four quadrants. Um, and anything greater than 25 centimeters is considered um, polyhydramnios or a maximum vertical pocket if you were just to assess one pocket greater than eight centimeters. So that's all I'm showing here is that this baby has polyhydramnios, um, some sort of atrial tachyarrhythmia, and you can actually see a goiter in the baby sometimes. So that's what we're looking at here, a fetal goiter. So this may be something, again, that you see when you put the probe down, you just the heart looks like it's quivering. But if you were to just assess the ventricular rate, you're not actually going to um, recognize that this is um, most likely a, a supraventricular arrhythmia. Um, the most common arrhythmias that we will see are, um, is a flutter, most commonly. Um, so again, this is assessing both the atrial rate and the ventricular rate here. So some of the endocrine and metabolic changes in pregnancy, and we'll focus um, primarily on the thyroid, but I just wanted to mention that it is a state of insulin resistance. Um, we know that we get hyperplasia of the maternal islet cells, hyperinsulinemia, and this is driven by a couple different things, um, but one of the hormones is called human placental lactogen, or HPL, which drives this insulin resistance. Patients have relative fasting hypoglycemia, um, and then from a thyroid perspective, there's an increase in the thyroid volume by 10 to 30 percent. Um, so if someone has an enlarged thyroid, that not, is not necessarily does not prompt me um, to get thyroid studies, but certainly nodules or true would. Um, there's an increase in thyroid binding globulin, and there's a decrease um, in TSH in the first trimester. Um, and that's due to weak stimulation of the thyroid receptors by the HCG during the first 12 weeks of gestation. So oftentimes we'll have patients that come that are referred to us for um, low TSH when actually that's exactly what we would expect to see initially. Um, so we do have trimester specific references for TSH and total T4 and T3 um, that we would use and that should normalize into the second trimester. And the fetal thyroid gland synthesizes uh, thyroid hormone by approximately 12 weeks gestation. So maternal hyperthyroidism, so 95% of cases are secondary to Graves' disease. Um, and when this is inadequately treated, this can lead to some of the things that we just saw. So we saw um, from a fetal perspective, but um, we saw arrhythmias, which we can see those in the mom too. Oftentimes we can see preeclampsia with severe features at a very early gestational age, uh, preterm delivery, heart failure, cardiomyopathy, and again, thyroid storm, which is our patient had been um, previously admitted for thyroid storm in the past. And then fetal hyperthyroidism, so is associated with early pregnancy loss, uh, growth restriction, tachyarrhythmias, non-immune high drops, again, something that we talked about in the first lecture, uh, low birth weight, and stillbirth. So when I have a patient that has um, known hyperthyroidism, the first thing I always want to know if they've had antibody, um, thyroid antibodies assessed. And the reason for that um, is because those can cross the placenta and place patients or place the fetus at risk for fetal hyperthyroidism. And sometimes we have patients that have a history of Graves' disease, they undergo thyroidectomy, and now they're on Synthroid. 
But those patients, if they ever had a history of Graves' disease or they're uncertain, we always get the um, thyroid-stimulating antibodies because even though the patient is um, hypothyroid on Synthroid, they still have circulating antibodies that can cross the placenta. So those patients are actually really challenging to manage because if they were to develop fetal hyperthyroidism, you have to treat them as you would for maternal hyperthyroidism with a, um, you know, PTU or methimazole, and then you also have to continue their Synthroid. So it can be really, really challenging when you see that. So the treatment of thyroid storm in pregnancy, I know recently that they believe the uh, medical ICU just admitted um, one of our patients um, in thyroid storm not that long ago, but it's relatively unchanged from the non-pregnant patient. And we use, again, propothiouracil, um, and just not speaking specifically of thyroid storm, but when we're talking about um, which medication we use in pregnancy for treatment of hyperthyroidism, we often um, use PTU in the first trimester, and we use methimazole um, in the second trimester. And the reason for that is um, because in the first trimester, we know that methimazole is associated with an embryopathy. Um, you can see esophage, uh, esophageal or coanal atresia, and they have this cutaneous um, manifestations called aplasia cutis. So we'll start patients off on PTU, and then we'll switch to methimazole um, just because PTU does have a risk of hepatotoxicity. Both of these medications are um, place patients at risk for developing leukopenia, but about less than 1% will develop agranulocytosis, but if that happens, you have to stop it immediately. So iodine therapy, um, again, for thyroid storm, dexamethasone or hydrocortisone. Again, we always prefer dexamethasone because if we can um, have the benefit of uh, fetal lung maturity, we would do that, although the dose um, for thyroid storm is a little bit more frequent um, than what we use for fetal lung maturity, but that's okay. Uh, beta blockers are completely safe. And then the biggest thing is thyroid storm alone is not an indication for delivery. So we want to stabilize mom, and then that often stabilizes baby as well. Um, in the case that we had with the arrhythmia, um, you know, certainly we would prefer to treat the fetal hyperthyroidism um, before treating the arrhythmia. Um, but we can't, the baby can't stay with that rhythm just because that can lead to high drops as well. Um, so we would recommend a sampling of the umbilical vein or cortisynthesis so that we can assess the thyroid level in the baby because that allows us to titrate maternal therapy. And oftentimes they sometimes need um, serial cortisynthesis just to figure out if we're uh, treating them appropriately or sometimes you can just go with symptoms whether or not that arrhythmia resolves. All right, so next case, um, we have a 38-year-old, um, G6P1051. She's at 13 weeks and five days, who presents for a first trimester ultrasound. Her history is significant for cesarean delivery times one, for breech presentation, and advanced maternal age. She has no complaints, she has no abdominal cramping, and no vaginal bleeding. So you, um, you know, we're seeing these in uh, these ultrasound images uh, for the first time. And in the top right, so we are looking, here's the uterus. Um, and we're looking at the implantation of the gestational sac, which just appears really odd. It looks like it's actually really low. So if you imagine this is sort of a lower uterine segment, 
This is the fundus up here. So this just doesn't look nicely centered in the uterus. So that should be a little bit striking and abnormal appearing. This image is just showing you that when you scan closer to the fundus of the uterus, it just looks empty. And then here, this is um, transvaginal, and it's just giving you a little bit um, closer look at actually what you're seeing. So we, we do see um, a gestational sac, we see a yolk sac, and we see a, a fetal pole or a crown rump length. So we know that it's intrauterine per se. Um, it's not an ectopic pregnancy, but it looks abnormally positioned. So again, um, based on this, one of the things we're just showing that you have a gestational sac, um, that this is, again, the fundus of the uterus here. You would otherwise expect this, the gestational sac and the fetus, to kind of be more centered, showing you in comparison to the bladder. And then you're seeing all these, like, again, very vascular, vascular um, area between the bladder, um, the lower uterine segment, and the placenta. So one thing we worry about in this case is something called a cesarean scar, um, ectopic or cesarean scar pregnancy, per se. These are also conditions that are associated with really high maternal morbidity, um, and we'll talk about some of the treatment modalities for this. So in diagnosis, the ultrasound is the preferred imaging modality. Um, it's a low anteriorly located gestational sac, so that's where the center or the fundus of the uterus will just appear empty. And you see an empty cervical canal. So it's not a cervical ectopic pregnancy, um, and it's certainly not in the adnexal structures. You see a really thin myometrial layer between the gestational sac and the bladder. And again, similar to like placenta accreta, you may actually see a bulge of the gestational sac into the bladder. So there's a lot of different treatment recommendations for this. Um, but there's not one preferred. Everyone, I will say, we've had a number of these cases and actually sort of have done a couple very differently. Um, it depends on the patient's comorbidities, the patient's desire for future childbearing, um, and if they've already undergone some form of treatment that was not successful, and then now that's why they're coming to us. So, unfortunately, pregnancy termination is advised. Um, they do recommend against expectant management because of the risk of maternal morbidity which can be hemorrhage, uterine rupture. And most often, if a patient continues the pregnancy, this will be a placenta accreta spectrum. Um, the recommendation is for delivery at 34 to 36 weeks. Um, and that is, again, if you can get that far in the pregnancy. So as I said, optimal treatment is not known. Um, but there is sort of medical options versus surgical options, and most commonly we do a, com a combination of both. So you can do intragestational methotrexate, where you actually inject methotrexate sort of through the cervix into the gestational sac. Um, and you can do, in addition to the intragestational methotrexate, you can do systemic methotrexate. So it's a lower dose of methotrexate than what you would give for like an ectopic pregnancy in the um, adnexal structures or in the fallopian tube because you've given some intragestational methotrexate. Sometimes we'll give intragestational methotrexate, um, see if the vascularity is reduced, um, and then we'll go for the surgical approach. Um, so you can do uh, operative resection, where the, whether that's laparoscopic, hysteroscopic, or using a transvaginal approach. 
you can do ultrasound guided vacuum aspiration or uterine artery embolization in an adjunct kind of to all of these things. There's something, the cervical balloon, double balloon catheter, which essentially sort of tamponades um, the uh, kind of the cesarean scar ectopic because they are so vascular. And in some cases, we do offer what's called a gravid hysterectomy, and that's where we perform a hysterectomy just with everything in situ um, if someone is completed childbearing. Um, things to avoid, so we know that systemic methotrexate alone is not effective um, and can just be associated with adverse events. Um, and we don't recommend sharp curettage alone again because these are so vascular um, that you just increase the risk of hemorrhage if you just do sharp curettage alone and don't do that with some sort of tamponade, balloon tamponade, or intragestational methotrexate. So our patient got systemic methotrexate and intragestational sac methotrexate, and the plan was to follow serial ultrasounds to see if um, the vascularity was reduced before either we elected to do a surgical procedure or just to follow and see if, um, you know, you can follow the beta-HCG levels and see if that resolves on its own. So this patient missed her one-week follow-up due to transportation. Um, and whenever we're doing ultrasound, we always assess the uterine artery dopplers. Um, and it was noticed that the maternal heart rate was in the 140s when we did the uterine artery dopplers. So when we talked to her and just said her heart rate was high, she says, oh, I've had fever, chills, and I did feel like my heart was racing over the past couple of days. So we got, an, or we got vital signs, and this is all in the outpatient center setting. And she had a heart rate in the 150s, and her blood pressure was about 90s over 60s. She was sent to the emergency room for further evaluation. So her differential included sepsis, secondary to retained products of conception, methotrexate toxicity. Um, she got volume resuscitation, but it had a persistent lactate greater than 2 and actually required administration of vasopressors to maintain her MAP greater than 65, um, consistent with a diagnosis of septic shock. So our ultrasound findings were um, suggestive that she does have some routine stuff in her uterus. So we still see um, the gestational sac that is kind of lower down in the uterine cavity. Uh, we no longer see the yolk sac. We no longer see the fetal cardiac activity. And we actually see a relative reduction in the blood flow um, compared to what we were seeing initially. Um, so given these findings and the setting of sepsis, we know that we have to evacuate the uterine cavity. So this patient went for a DNC. Um, and actually had a, um, we use a larger Foley, um, and we put a Foley balloon in the uterus to just tamponade um, to help reduce the bleeding. And that can stand for 12 to 24 hours, and then we can remove it. So she had septic shock, again, from retained products of conception um, and required emergent dilation and curettage. So is there anything in particular that happens with the immune system in pregnancy that sort of predisposes pregnant women to certain infections? Um, so I, I think this is kind of one of the hardest things that I had to sort of get my mind around when I first started obstetrics, but it's not really um, a state of immunodeficiency at all. I know we commonly say oh, pregnant, or immuno, pregnant patients are immunocompromised, but it's more of a state of an altered immune function. And 
we see a shift away from the cell-mediated cytotoxic immunity to an increase in the humoral and innate immune response. So this is an adaptive mechanism by the fetus or that protects the fetus from the maternal cytotoxic immune response. You see a decrease in natural killer cells, and you actually see an increase in white blood cells. And into the third trimester, we commonly see white blood cells in the you know, 10 to 12,000. During labor, on the other hand, you can see a really significant increase in the white blood cell count to up to 20,000. I would say 30,000 is probably a lot, um, but you do see much higher white blood cell counts, which makes it really challenging to distinguish if someone is infected when they're either in labor or immediately after delivery. Um, so oftentimes with chorioamnionitis or endometritis, we don't use the white blood cell count because it can just be really um, challenging. We see an increase in circulating um, segmented neutrophils and granulocytes. Um, and again, we, this change in the characteristics of the white blood cell may explain why pregnant women are susceptible to overwhelming sepsis when, we have, when they have infections that otherwise don't seem severe enough to cause sepsis. Most commonly, we think of pyelonephritis, right? And that's why we treat asymptomatic bacteria in pregnancy, because these patients are so prone to developing certain infections. And because of the decreased cellular immunity, patients are also more susceptible to some intracellular pathogens like cytomegalovirus, herpes simplex, and varicella. All right, I think we have two more cases. I think we're doing okay at the moment. So um, this case is a 19-year-old, Gravita 1, um, who presents to the emergency department in status epilepticus. Um, her urine pregnancy test in the emergency room is positive, and a beta HCG is 50,000. Uh, per the patient's family, she was unaware of the pregnancy. She has a medical history that's significant for epilepsy. She's managed on three anti-epileptics, including Keppra, Lamictal, and Valproic Acid. She was intubated in the emergency room, sedated on propofol and Versed, and transferred to the neuro ICU. The OB team was consulted for interpretation of the following ultrasound images. So uh, I'll kind of walk you through this because sometimes it's a little bit challenging to kind of see. So this is, a again, a first trimester ultrasound. Um, these are trans-abdominal images. And um, what you are seeing here, so we see the placenta at the posterior aspect of the uterus. And what I wanted you to see here, so if you imagine this is sort of the crown rump length, this is supposed to be the head, and this is sort of the rump or the bottom of the fetus. You can see extremities. Something doesn't look right with the cranium, right? It just looks like it's, you can't actually see any bone that would represent like the calvarium. And you see this fluid and almost looks like there's just a little bit of brain tissue that's just sort of floating around or just maybe contained um, within the meninges here. So same thing here, just showing a very similar image um, where we're seeing the, the free floating sort of brain tissue. Um, and then in this one, again, it's a little bit hard. You see the arm here, um, and you see uh, this was a twin gestation, so uh, there is another little twin here. Um, but specifically, we're focusing on this fetus, and it almost looks like it's sort of kind of cut off right above the eyes, which is very abnormal. And then here, we can do 3D, so that's exactly what we're showing in this image. You see this is the orbit, and then there's sort of like a pretty definitive 
um, cutoff between where we see the eyes and then this is actually just free-floating brain tissue. So the next image is a little bit um, not very pleasant, so we'll go a little bit quickly. But what I wanted to really show you um, is that this is what we would see on autopsy specimen where you have the eyes, and again, that correlates with that abrupt cutoff of the skull, and then you just see the brain tissue um, above. And depending on the gestational age, you may see some brain tissue or you may not see anything at all. And that's called an exencephaly or an anencephaly sequence. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about neural tube defects specifically, but that's what I wanted to highlight from a nutrition standpoint um, in pregnancy. So I've included kind of recommended intake for pregnant and lactating women, specifically folate. So we always know that folate is part of a prenatal vitamin. Um, and really the recommendation is anywhere from 400 to 600 micrograms um, or 0.4 milligrams that you'll see in your um, prenatal vitamins. Um, but for women that have a history of a neural tube defect or in patients that um, are on certain medications, such as seizure medications, we often recommend much, uh, much higher dose, usually four milligrams, um, to help prevent neural tube defects because a lot of these are uh, folate antagonists. The other thing I just wanted to highlight was the recommended weight gain in pregnancy. Um, because we know that excessive weight gain in pregnancy can be associated with a number of adverse outcomes. So specifically large for gestational age um, fetuses, um, increased risk of cesarean delivery, increased risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, diabetes, um, um, and I think I said need for cesarean delivery or shoulder dystocia. So it's pretty remarkable that obesity defined, so class, anyone that is obese, um, with a BMI greater than 30, the recommendation is only 11 to 20 pounds, um, which is often very challenging. So when patients ask me how much they should gain in the pregnancy, we always talk about weight maintenance, again, depending on how much, how, what their starting weight is, or really only gaining 11 to 20 pounds. So these recommendations come from the Institute of Medicine. Um, they're fairly old, but this is kind of what we've gone by for a long time. So getting back to our case, um, certainly what we were seeing was a neural tube defect. So failure of the neuropore to close at the, uh, um, you have the cranium and then the caudal end of the fetus. So if it's the cranial end, you get this exencephaly or anencephaly sequence. Um, and if it's at the caudal portion, um, you're just seeing a, um, like spina bifida or myelomeningocele. So there's no calvarium um, and there's really no neural tissue above the orbit. So very early on in this sequence, when we call it exencephaly, you see prominent neural tissue. That's when we were seeing that kind of brain matter there. Um, it has an irregular contour. And with time, um, it just sort of dissolves in the amniotic fluid. Um, and so that's when, when there's no organized neural tissue remaining, that's anencephaly. So again, it really just depends on the gestational age that you're seeing um, as to what kind of where in the sequence you'll, what you'll see. The findings where you just see the eyes and it's sort of cut up above that is proptosis. Um, this is a lethal malformation. Um, it's just not compatible at all. So our recommendation is pregnancy termination. Um, if a patient wants to continue the pregnancy, oftentimes these, pre these patients um, can carry to term. 
And the reason for that is there's not this developed um, hypothalamic pituitary axis that is responsible for the initiation of labor. So oftentimes these patients don't go into labor on their own, which can be a little bit challenging. Uh, risk factors, we talked about a folic acid deficiency. So whether that's medication mediated um, in the United States, we don't generally see that just um, because of supplementation in our diets. Uh, but in other third world countries, you can see that. Um, Insulin-dependent diabetes, specifically poorly controlled diabetes, we know the higher the hemoglobin A1C at, the, uh, at conception, the increased risk of congenital malformations. Obesity, um, methotrexate, um, and of the anti-epileptics, carbamazepine, phenytoin, and valproic acid are going to be the offenders that are more likely caused with a neural tube defect. And hyperthermia can be associated with neural tube defects. Um, I just put this on here because I just wanted everyone to be aware, you know, certainly we think of the FDA um, classification of medications, whether it's class A, B, C, D, or um, X. We don't really use that anymore. It's being phased out as of kind of 2015, actually. And now all medications should come with kind of a risk summary, both for pregnancy, lactation, and those um, of reproductive age. Um, the risk statement will give you the information that we have based on human data, um, animal data, and pharmacology. So it'll explain the mechanism of action and the potential associated risk with that. And similarly, uh, with the lactation, again, it tells you, it just gives sort of a risk and benefit statement. And one of the um, websites that I found really good, so certainly we all have access to like Micromedics, which is really great because it'll do pregnancy and lactation. But this CDC website I found to be really informative because it actually breaks down medications um, by diagnosis. So if you're thinking about using like um, anti-epileptics or anti-psychotics or um, medications we use for hypertension, it breaks down by category, which I thought was really, really good. Um, so always feel free to check out these, but if you see that we're not necessarily putting that something as a category B, it's because we're sort of phasing out of that. All right, this is um, the last case, which I think is one of the most interesting cases. Um, so I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, this patient is a 26-year-old. Uh, she's a G6, P, uh, sorry, G3, uh, P2002. She's at 26 weeks and three days. She presents to labor and delivery with complaints of contractions. Um, her pregnancy is complicated by a dichorionic diamniotic twin gestation. She's admitted to labor and delivery for the management of preterm labor. Um, she receives antenatal corticosteroids and magnesium sulfate for tocolysis and for fetal neuroprotection. Um, after performing a bedside ultrasound, you are concerned that one of the fetuses has polyhydramnio and an abnormal head mass. Um, she undergoes amnio reduction to prevent further progression of her preterm labor. A multidisciplinary meeting is convened. Um, to make delivery plans of this complex mass. So this is what you are seeing on ultrasound. Um, and I will show you um, in terms of this uh, top left. Again, remember I said it was a dichorionic, diamniotic twin gestation. So I'm just simply showing you the profile of the normal appearing fetus. And this is in contrast to this, where you see we're showing you the nasal bone here. Here's the, what would be the, kind of the mandible 
Um, and then we see this structure here that looks a little bit strange. It's hard to really characterize it any more than it's certainly what appears to emanate from the mouth. Where in the mouth, it's really hard to know. Is it the tongue? Is it the palate? We really don't know based on this. Um, but we know that it, this is very abnormal appearing. And then here, I'm just showing you, I know we did this in the first lecture, but with a dichorionic, diamniotic twin gestation, we have this really thick dividing membrane. Um, remember, this is the twin peak sign that separates the two. So we have two placentas and two sacs. And that's actually really important in particular for this case um, to put, in order to discuss like how to deliver this patient. So here are some videos. So this again is the profile, um, and you just see this really large, complex mass coming from what looks like the mouth. So it looks like it has solid components. It has six cystic components as well, um, and we we don't know where it arises from. It could be the palate or the base of the skull. Um, we see that the palate appears intact on some other imaging, um, but it's hard to visualize the soft palate. Um, now, this is at 17 weeks gestation. So I'm going to show you some images next um, as at 26 weeks. Um, this is just assessing the vascularity of the mass. We know that it does appear somewhat vascular. And um, the polyhydramnios in this baby is because the baby can't swallow because of the true obstruction of the mass itself. And similar to the neural tube defect, we can do 3D imaging and we can just see, you know, try to get a better understanding of the mass itself. So fast forward to 20, our patient's 26 weeks. I think the patient that we have currently is 27 weeks, but um, that's where these images come from. But you can see how rapidly this mass has grown. Um, it essentially just is larger than the fetus itself. So this um, image I'm just showing you, um, again, we're sweeping through and we can see the different components of this mass, cystic and solid, and then Inferiorly, you can see the second twin. It almost looks like it's squished um, because there's so much fluid around this, um, the twin with the mass that can't swallow. So it's pretty remarkable in size. So one of the things that we think about when delivering this baby is, you know, how can we safely deliver the baby so that we can establish an airway? And with this massive you know, structure, there's no way that you could put a normal endotracheal tube, and we actually don't even know if the neck is obstructed and could we potentially do like a tracheostomy or something. So um, one of the things we talk about is something called an ex-utero intrapartum technique or exit. Um, and the uh, purpose of an exit procedure is essentially to deliver the fetal head while maintaining um, the, while the baby is still had the umbilical cord is still connected to the placenta and the placenta is still adherent to the uterine the, the uterine wall because we know that the fetus is being perfused right now um, and that you can take your time and try to establish an airway or alternatively try to put the baby on on um, ECMO so we do exit procedures for a couple of different reasons mainly it's for um, an obstructed airway that can be due to extrinsic compression. So you may have a cervical, pharyngeal, or thoracic mass. Um, a baby that has severe micronathia, so there are certain genetic conditions where the uh, mandible is just very, very small, and you're worried that, about placing an endotracheal tube. 
Um, and then you can have an intrinsic stenosis, so whether you have um, atresia or sort of like a membrane that's occluding the trachea, um, and that's called congenital high airway obstruction syndrome or chaos. So um, in the one sort of exit that I had been a part of, um, they're not really that common, but it was a membrane um, that was sort of covering the trachea. Um, so there was, we weren't really quite sure whether it was a membrane or stenosis because that's really hard to tell on ultrasound. Um, so we did do an exit, theoretically exit to ECMO. If we think that there's some sort of cardiothoracic malformation um, where securing the airway may not be possible, that's again when we talk about ECMO. So um, just some caveats to this, it's done under general anesthesia because you want the patient and you want the uterus to be completely relaxed because um, as you make that uterine incision, rupture the bag of membranes and deliver the fetal head, you don't want the uterus to contract and have the placenta separate because you're dependent on that fetal perfusion to take your time and do whatever you need to do to establish an airway or ECMO. Um, you do actually infuse fluid into the uterus, um, so one, to keep the baby nice and warm um, and keep it nice and expanded so they don't get compression of the um, umbilical cord. And often what you do is you deliver the head, just like this picture shows, and you deliver one of the upper extremities so that you can put pulse ox monitoring um, on the fetus. So this patient undergoes a scheduled exit procedure at 38 weeks. Again, the biggest, the, the you want the baby to be as big as possible, um, especially if you are considering ECMO. Um, the unaffected fetus is delivered first without difficulty. However, shortly after performing the amniotomy for the affected fetus, remember you have two sacs, two placentas, so you rupture the membranes for the second fetus, the one that's affected. She experiences sudden hypoxia and hypotension. You abandon the exit procedure, you deliver the fetus, um, but there's severe uterine atony that's non-responsive to our uterotonics and there's significant bleeding. So one of the things you should automatically think about in someone that has rapid cardiopulmonary decompensation and hemorrhage is amniotic fluid embolism. So anesthesia starts a massive transfusion event. You get an intraoperative TEE, which shows RV dilation um, and severe dysfunction. So again, that is the first thing that sort of goes through my mind, certainly pulmonary embolism. But because of the proximity to rupturing the bag of water um, or membranes, um, that's when I think of an AFE. Again, this is a, a, a clinical diagnosis. There's no one laboratory test that's going to tell you, and actually it's really hard to diagnose even with autopsy, but it's that sort of triad of um, you know, hypoxia, hypotension, um, and the DIC that sort of happens after that. So we think, we, we don't really know or understand well the uh, pathophysiology or sort of what causes this to happen, but it's most common in labor or postpartum, um, often can be associated with rupture of membranes when there's something um, that is fetal in origin that enters the maternal circulation that sort of sets off this cascade of a, a massive, almost inflammatory-like response where you get significant increase in your pulmonary vascular resistance. That's when you get the RV strain, um, and then you get hypoxia, hypotension. Often this can be associated with cardiac arrest. And again, you also have, um, uh, which you can have, um, starts this kind of coagulation cascade, and they progress into DIC. Um, so 
things to think about if you're, um, you know, ever taking care of a patient that had an AFE, it's going to mainly be focused on resuscitation, um, both from a bleeding perspective, but also from a hemodynamic standpoint. Um, but it should always be considered um, in patients with sudden cardiorespiratory collapse. Um, again, laboring patients is when generally not going to just happen in the antepartum period in someone that's just otherwise at home. But we think of it 70% of the time happens in labor. 11% after a vaginal delivery, um, and 19% at the time of cesarean delivery when you rupture the membranes. Um, it does have a really high perinatal morbidity and mortality. Um, it's a clinical diagnosis. Um, you know, certainly the recommendations are very um, kind of uh, blanket statements in terms of just provide good uh, resuscitation and cardiopulmonary support, whether that's with vasopressors, whether with inotropes. Um, have a low threshold, you're initiating your MTE, often you'll give uterotonics and the atony will not respond. So the um, threshold to proceed with hysterectomy is incredibly low because you've got to remove the source that's going to have the greatest amount of blood loss, which is the uterus. Um, and then there, is, there are case reports that describe um, using VA ECMO for acute RV failure. Um, but per kind of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine guidelines, they just said it's not routinely recommended due to the lack of adequate evidence of benefit. But in my mind, I would absolutely call like my cardiac surgery colleagues if I was thought that I was um, faced with um, AFE, because if I can get the uterus out pretty quickly and at least stop the bleeding for that perspective, then they may need prolonged recovery from a cardiopulmonary perspective. And I think that's the last case. Yep, that was it. Um, so I'm happy to take any questions. I hope that was helpful for you. Um, Allie, I, I was like nervous on the, at the edge of my seat for that entire last case <laughs> about like the baby's airway, the mother, the amniotic fluid, and yeah. the embolism. I felt, um, I felt anxious and nervous as you were presenting it. <laughs> well, I hope that <laughs> didn't mean to make you feel that way. <laughs> Um, does anyone have any questions for Dr. Langford? Those were two uh, absolutely fantastic lectures. 